Welcome to one of three special ABR Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize-themed episodes of the ABR podcast. My name is Amy Bailey, and I'm the Deputy Editor of ABR. The Jolly Prize is worth a total of $12,500 and is open to authors writing in English around the world. This year, the Jolly Prize attracted 1,200 entries from 38 different countries. The judges, Gregory Day, Jennifer Mills and Maria Tackelander, long-listed eight stories from six of those countries. And you can find a complete listing on our website. The three shortlisted stories appear in our August issue, and they are Black Wax by Winter Bell, The Mannequin by Rowan Heath, and Our Own Fantastic by Uzma Aslam Khan. This week, we will be releasing three special episodes featuring the three shortlisted authors reading their stories, in alphabetical order, in the lead-up to the Jolly Prize ceremony on August 17. We hope you enjoy these special episodes. In the first of these three special Jolly Prize podcast episodes, Winter Bell reads her story Black Wax. Winter Bell is a writer of literary fiction and poetry. Born in England, she now splits her time between Paris and Los Angeles. She is presently polishing for publication her debut novel After the Angels, as well as her short story collection Hard Place Rock, from which the story Black Wax is taken. Here is Winter Bell reading Black Wax. Black Wax. They met by the smashed cobots at the intersection of Homan and 16th, as proposed in her perfectly spelled text message earlier that night. Her name was Artesia, which Harry would later learn she wrote on her mailbox as Tezia. Harry might have guessed that the moment he saw her. Full body leather, tattoo of a honeybee on her neck, a my body, my canvas vibe that suggested she had more ink, way more carnivorous, other places too. Most unpromising of all, the Fleetwood Mac t-shirt. Flamingo coloured brassiere peeking through, but by this point, he was just glad she was wearing underwear at all. Harry's face must have fallen because Artesia said, yo, what? She had a voice that sounded like she'd been smoking for half an actual century. Maybe that's why, on the phone, Harry had assumed he was dealing with someone considerably older. In fact, Artesia was in her early 20s. Same as him. Harry didn't quite meet her eyes. Try to make this as impersonal as possible. Like he said, I'm sorry, but my ad was serious, you know? Uh-huh, she said, and I seriously hauled it out here to meet you. He said, I'm hiring a secretary for accounting and administration. She said, I heard you on the phone. I can do that. He said, like your button-down type of secretary? Artesia assessed herself. She said, you see any buttons up? Zips and rips. That's all Harry saw. There was no way she was right for the position. Harry needed someone to cover his weakness with paperwork, to write up what he dreamt up. Beige write it up the way the world of business seemed to need. On time, too. Deadlines weren't his strong point either. This girl looked about as beige and orderly as a dripping popsicle. But as she eyed him through the lousy streetlight, looking righteously pissed, Harry found he couldn't bring himself to say, this is pointless. So he took her to that boy's diner, where Aretha Franklin had signed the wallpaper, and the waitress wore a tag that said, Jesus saves, above her name. Harry bought them both honey cream sodas, and went through the motions of an interview. As Artesia sat weaving her pumpernickel hair around her fingers, Harry gave his speech. African-American music, Harry said, had come to mean one thing, in the popular imagination. Hip-hop and jazz. 
Harry's record label would change that. In the cash-only basement bars, the project stairwells, and the busking aisles of the L train, there were pioneers out there. Lonely as Christmas trees in July, honing other forms of black music. Harry's vision was to find and champion those overlooked artists, first here in Chicago, then expanding to the nation. Given Artesia's apparent admiration of other long-embraced forms of music, and here Harry looked meaningfully at the Fleetwood Mac t-shirt, he would understand if she felt now that the position was not... Artesia raised a finger one moment and finished sucking up soda. She said, mark it. Harry realised this was a question. I'ma make the marquee, he said. People don't know they want this yet. Like sliced bread. How that wasn't a thing until it was. Artesia frowned elaborately. So, you know they want it, she said, but they don't? He paused. I'ma make them want it. It won't stop till they do. She said, kind of rapey? He said, say what? Look, Artesia said, shaking her head with amused impatience. Sex and sugar. Guess he looked kind of dopey because she explained. Dear imperialistic asshole, that part she said sweetly. People know exactly what they want. And that was sex and sugar. One of those two things motivated the sale of everything. Which one was going to sell Harry's records? Sliced bread's a savoury, Harry said feebly. She said, you dreaming. The bread people, the car people, the news people, they put sex in or they put sugar in, and that's business. They were silent, except for the clacking of Artesia's jeweled nails on her glass. She had annoyed Harry deep in his gut, as she would many times again, generally for being right. Harry said, you're saying my business isn't viable? No, she said. I'm saying you're telling it wrong. You're leading with the politics. You know why we got to put our pain on placards and yell it through the gate? Because no one with money or influence wants to hear it. And not to prejudge you or nothing, but I'm guessing money and influence is something with which you'll be needing an assist. That is so, he said. The weird diction owing to his reluctance to concede correct. She said, of course, black folks make all kinds of music. We're all kinds of souls. But that truth is not a plan. Excuse me. She swiped thin air to signal she had a better word. It's not a profit map. So. Harry sat bewildered by the sudden halt. He said, so? She blinked like it was obvious. So? Tell me you're going to find music that makes people feel horny or fuckable or like candy makes them feel. Keep it low that it's music by black folks. That's your bathroom mirror goal. You don't have to tell it loud and wide. That's cowardly, Harrod said. Nope, she said. The pattern in your client list will make it plenty clear. Our community gets new representation in the end, whether you bullhorn it up front or not. But money and influence is only going to be lifting your business into actually happening if there's a... She seemed to have forgotten her own perfect word. Harry prompted, map. Right, she said. Map to more money and influence. As Harry absorbed that, Artesia considered her t-shirt. And this, this I picked up off the floor after we got topless to protest the senator. No one was too fussed about whose top was whose because the police had arrived. Harry sat with that for a minute. Where to start? He finally decided on which senator. Artesia shrugged. I guess the one that's a boob. You do that a lot, Harry said nervously, protesting. 
She said, that's where all my arrests came from, yeah. Went saying, he said, arrests? The other jobs I've tried for, she said, they haven't liked that so much. But you, I think you're different. He said, how's that? Artesia looked at him from the most knowing depths of her eyes. She said, because $10 an hour is a joke, but I'm guessing it's nine more an hour than you got. In no time at all, this could belly up and I'm back to circling two stoner ads. So I'm taking a chance on you too. As an afterthought, she said, and hey, I could have shown up worse. I could have shown up white. Harry raised his palms. Now you got that wrong. I'm an equal opportunist. He fell silent as she made blabbing motions with her hand. Their eyes met for a moment. He thought of that perfect spelling in her text message. His smile already hinted in the air between them. No, Artesia was not beige. The mistakes she made in the early days were spectacular. So much so that they felt like cosmic events, super blood moons, conjunctions of Venus and Saturn that only the two of them had witnessed. The time she'd mailed their tax return to the Illinois Department of Transport because she'd searched, file something the expressway, then hadn't noticed that Google had given her, did you mean results for expressway? The edgy but illegible business cards. The legible but gothic letterhead. The bargain office chairs that turned out to be garden furniture. The typos that resulted from her listening to his dictation tapes and NPR both at once. NPR, Harry exclaimed tight up in his throat when she'd unhurriedly diagnosed the problem. The joke among Harry and his friends was that NPR stood for Nana's playable Ritalin because all it did was keep old ladies from napping. Artesia had shrugged and said, obviously, she was only listening to it in eternal hope they play Fleetwood Mac. A smile flickering at the corner of her mouth, where her tangerine lipstick was smudgiest. All the same, Artesia learned fast, and in no time at all became essential to Harry. Yes, somehow even when spectacularly fucking up, essential. She had an instinctive sense of priority and proportion, a fierce loyalty to their bottom line, and a wide circle of scrappily creative friends from the fashion programme she half-graduated, all of them ready to lend a hand. Above all, she was as grounded as a fire hydrant. For months, Harry had pained over potential names for his record label. Night Peach Records. Gravy Train Records. Coffeed Up Records. Artesia dismissed all of these as having the stickily homespun feel of a lemonade stand. Just spit it out, Artesia said, hard and clean, like something you'd yell if someone dangled you upside down from a rooftop. And so, Black Wax Records was born. It had a founder, a handful of volunteer talent scouts, and now a secretary. To Harry, that was a business with the dimensions investors needed to see to take his vision seriously. Artesia had dimensions, all right. The bank manager could barely keep his eyes off them. The cream silk blouse, the chocolate pantsuit, the spectacles that vibed trigonometry consultant. She'd bought all these solely for their appointment and returned it to the store afterwards. But the way Artesia wore it, that didn't come off no hanger. Harry recognised very quickly that in the particular niche Artesia called her own, she was the real deal. It didn't get them a bank loan that day, nor in the four more attempts that followed over the next two years. But every time Artesia made an effort for his business, Harry felt that business was real. 
Maybe it was the low expectations you learned early as a black man too restless and broke for college. Maybe it was his upbringing in a family of factory workers, where excellence was dependable repetition, and improvisation was frowned on and even dangerous. Or maybe it was still living at his aunt and uncle's place where he'd moved after cancer took his mother, the address for which always got lingering looks from administrators. Is that a storage unit? One lady at the SBA district office had said, openly straining to imagine what else that street was fit for. Harry pointed out that businesses could not legally be registered to storage units and left it at that. For whatever reason, Harry couldn't shake the feeling of being an imposter in this world of creating your own paycheck. Harry felt that a little less when Artesia said, that's a killer idea for another business. But Black Wax Records is a different animal. This was in response to a self-proclaimed misfit money man who had a tiny, deniable office full of time zone clocks and money laundering vibes. He'd fund them, he said, if they changed their business plan to finding the black M&M. The black M&M, Artesia eye-rolled afterwards, is hip-hop. Black Wax, Artesia would say, was an independent record label that identified underexposed talent sooner than anyone else, thanks to its authenticity-first outreach energies. They'd settled on outreach energies after rejecting outreach program, too white, and outreach efforts, which tended to get them asked, what efforts exactly? And that was embarrassing. It was Harry and the three volunteer scouts mooking around town, as light-pocketed as birds. The musicians Black Wax discovered were too sensitive or shaggy for YouTube and SoundCloud, and often too rent-crushed or life-tired for any kind of self-marketing at all. They cared only about performing, that pre-fame, true star integrity. Artesia never exactly said their focus was black voices, but she would reject without comment anything not compatible with that focus. Those moments of sensing Artesia in his corner made Harry work harder. He befriended assholes, high-fived dumb fucks, nodded along with emotional wrecks. Also, he could say, tell me who you've heard lately. He paid particular attention to the drunks, the tweakers and the kids who barely hit puberty but already had gang tags burned into their skin. Whatever music had registered with them through the apparatus of their self-destruction was a name Harry wanted to know. In this way, Harry was the first to hear about Mark Stussy Robeson, a singer-songwriter whose bruised folk songs were later compared by the free press to dusty candy floss. There was also protest pianist Ion, an electronic blues group, Broken Kite. Only Broken Kite had a manager. This was an ex-touring saxophonist with a drooping face who only seemed to represent folks he hoped someday would invite him to play with them. Such hoping was all he really did for them. He didn't appear to notice or care that the Black Wax record contract was a template Artesia had downloaded during a free trial of Law For You, with one company name here left in there by accident. The pianist, Ion, was tougher. As he flipped through the cheap printout, Ion noticed that the contract's language on record production and distribution read like hopes, not promises. Then he got to the clause that tied all of the foregoing to as-yet unsecured third-party investment. Ion smiled grimly, shook his head, and handed it back without a word. 
Stussy Robeson was the game changer. He owned nothing but his guitar and the case he carried it in, which he lined with spare socks, the raw materials for rolled cigarettes, and an increasingly unstitched copy of The Three Musketeers. I can't decide, our teacher said, if it's better or worse that his one book is not by James Baldwin. He was also 17 years old, with a fire-scarred face that couldn't, owing to permanent muscle loss, ever smile. My voice, he said, referring to his limited facial mobility, is a miracle. I gave up everything to follow that miracle. It would be nitpicking to observe that he never had very much to give up in the first place. Stussy couch surfed from neighbourhood to neighbourhood, around gigs. He had a cell phone, but frequently lost it. He played full immersion video games for hours, refusing to exit them until he felt inspired again. For this reason, getting the Black Wax contract to him took weeks. When they finally did, Stussy held the contract real close to his face as he read. Chuckled fondly a few times, then said, So you cats got no shoot, either. Artesia confirmed no parachute. Stussy cast the other miracle of his face, the crisply green eyes over the two of them, lingering on Harry's pants, wet by the snow, almost up to the knees, a sure sign there was no cab money in these folks. Stussy nodded as though to a long, calming monologue. Stussy signed. Which bothered Ion. He kept saying, as is, then paced around haphazardly while his baby tries to stash his car keys in its diaper. After two weeks of this, Ion went from rejecting their contract to insisting on a six-month renewable version. He also wanted a clause for immediate no-penalties release, if some other deal with guarantees came his way. With these signings, Black Wax was looking decidedly less adolescent. This time, the bank manager had coffee laid out for them. Decaf after 11, Artesia insisted. Decaffeinated was the one thing, not on the tray. Naturally, Artesia had never drunk it before in her life. She was being prickly in the way she felt they'd earned by now. Harry smiled and requested decaf too. Sex and sugar. Seven years later, Harry reminded Artesia of those two words in the icy lot of a car rental place at Minneapolis St. Paul Airport. They were heading to Bloomington, the city of Artesia's birth, for what she anticipated would be a mere tour of all the places she'd long outgrown. Standing by their rental car and pretending to read from the rental agreement, Harry told Artesia they'd find the keys on top of the back wheel. Artesia snorted, they just leave it right there on the wheel. He said, that's what it says. Artesia shook her head. That's something else I don't miss about this place. Always so damn trusting. She reached to the back wheel for the keys and found something else perched on top of it instead. Something else entirely. She stood with it in her hand and looked at him. As black wax had grown, it had demanded more and more strategy and stapling. Harry and Artesia had done both together, neither task feeling like it belonged more to one than the other. Fueled by Nat King Cole, rum cocoa and cheap crumbling cigarettes, they worked into the wee hours, when pink neon 
sprinkles from the 24-7 bail bond sign next door fell between their desks. Meanwhile, they talked small things, then things so great the voices would break with the weight of them, then great and small things interchangeably because over time, with each other, they forgot the difference. The bank manager had indeed fetched them decaf that day. Then he'd given them a $50,000 loan. Big money for baby's first business, Artesia had fumed later. It's true their hopes had been 10 times larger. $50,000 wouldn't fund much more than continuation for now. To justify the amount, the bank manager had used NASA words, vector, propulsion, resistance ratios, and moved a finger down a long column of scenario outcome yields. This was pre-printed, however, so can't have been their specific scenario. But Harry considered any money at all to be victory enough. Particularly in this, the electronic age. It was perfectly legitimate now for a record label to trade only in digital media. That put their premises, storage and distribution costs near zero. And most of their dollars could go into marketing. The bank's NASA-veiled fear of black innovation would not hold them back. In fact, they quickly came to appreciate that the kind of money they'd wanted likely would have taken them away from the reasons Stussy signed with them in the first place. That crazy, beautiful decision they would need repeated by others if Black Max was going to make it. Somehow, it happened. Talent did make the same leap onto their list. About two or three times a year at first, before six or seven signings became the norm. More often than not, the choice was because of Stussy and the mad respect for him around the city. Then Flames left him ugly as sin. A voice like that, though, he all you want to look at. Black Wax heard that a lot as the ink crossed the signature line. RRBT, a lesbian slam poet whose debut album, Trojan War, was about growing up in foster care, sought them out after Stussy name-dropped Harry as his demon whisperer during a So Far gig. You hush that boy's demons, RRBT said. Maybe there's hope for me too. Day Day, aka Danielle Marks, defined herself as a gospel rapper. That last word hit up against Harry's reluctance to continue the yoking of black to rap in their client list. But Artesia asked him to reconsider. This, she said, was rap the likes of which had never been heard before. She again asked him to reconsider when singer and cattle drummer Ty Roy created a crowd so big outside the Garfield Park Green Line station that the police stopped by and not to circulate finger snacks. Harry's hesitation? Ty was Cambodian. Artesia saw no conflict between representing Ty and their founding vision. As marginalized because black was simple paraphrases of marginalized by skin color. After that, black voices became voices of color in their unwritten ethos. And seven years went by. The business grew, albeit at a pace so slow that you could almost chalk that up to population growth, as one grinning venture capital man in a Kentucky Derby story hat put it. His female fun partner looked nervous and did not laugh. They paid back the bank loan, then were offered another three times the size and now called a credit facility. Harry got his own place where he watched Viking movies in a Camino 
and miss the continual compromise of a roommate. The black wax client list grew to more than 20 and its staff to six, scaffolded by a competitive internship program. Their biggest shock came four years in when they lost Stussy Roberson. LA took him, Artesia would say, and this expression caught on around the black wax office. It was a kind way of telling it. A West Hollywood condo, Lamborghini keys, and a piano signed by Beck was what it took for Stussy to break contract and sign with Universal, who sent an attorney to their office to take a seat, very carefully position his attaché case on his knees, and ask in a silky tone if there was a problem here. More folks might have been straight up happy for Stussy if it hadn't been for one particular clause in the Universal contract. It mandated him to wear a balaclava for every performance and public appearance. Urban energy personified, his publicist raved, anonymous and yet entirely himself. A black face in criminal getup was an easier sell, it seemed, than a disfigured black one in the open. They didn't expect it to, but Blackwag's records withstood the loss of Stussy. Of the clients that Stussy had passively led in, only one of them left with him. And it wasn't Ion the Pianist. Ion was particularly appalled by the balaclava clause and composed a jagged response piece called Envisage that got picked up for a TV show teaser. Throughout it all, Harry and Artesia were partners. Business partners with equal share ownership. Artesia requested this in year three and Harry revealed he'd already drafted an agreement. Artesia always had some sugar daddy. Different name, same dramatically unimaginative gifts. Armani, she'd announced flatly, the way others might say the day of the week. Harry, meanwhile, was so caught up in the business that he dated the same way he ate, simply so as not to go hungry. The food itself barely mattered. Then, one afternoon, while Harry was waiting for the L train, he noticed a man pacing by the safety line. Rumpled suit and clearly underslept, but that was just another way of saying Chicago. What got Harry's attention was the man's palpitating intensity and the way he seemed to breathe less and less as the ETA of the train ticked down. Their eyes met, and Harry understood the way you only can, face to face, that the man intended to jump in front of the train. Harry wanted to say something. Some simple words to revive this man's attachment to life. Music, Harry might say. Listen to some music and then decide. At the same time, he was terrified the intervention of a stranger would backfire and seal the man's resolve to jump. Before Harry could make up his mind, a group of school kids arrived and the pacing man came to a standstill. As the kids yelled and laughed and kicked a Halloween pumpkin around the platform, the man stood paralysed, his eyes filming with tears. Again, Harry silently understood. He couldn't do it with children watching. After the man had reeled away and taken the stairs up to the street, Harry thought about despair. He tried to remember the last time he'd felt despair, truly felt it, rather than just feeling weary with the moment and mistaking that for weariness with life. Harry realised it hadn't been for seven years, not since he'd met Artesia. When his train arrived, Harry travelled four stops more than he'd originally intended to the construction site that had once been his home street. The developer had run out of money, and so here stood the bare bones of urban regeneration, 
on indefinite hiatus. Harry walked the razor wire perimeter, missing his mother. She'd always silently nudged him forward at baseball tryouts or barbecue plate lines or the doorbells of sick paperboys whose roots he coveted. The worst rejection of all, his mother would say, is not trying, because you do that to yourself. Coming to where his childhood home once was, Harry stood very still, hanging memories on the scaffolding there now, knowing the biggest risk of all was still ahead of him. That night, Harry wrote down his feelings. For two weeks, he worked on what he wrote. Then, on a lunchtime walk, not entirely recognising his own voice, he'd read it to Artesia. A homecoming parade at the high school across the street now and then added whistles and pops from the marching band. There was silence. Then Artesia said, You're saying you love me. He said, That you have defined love for me, yes. They were waiting on a walk sign. Both turned to look at it, their lungs clenched. When the sign said go, neither moved. Artesia said, It used to hurt so much that you wouldn't just hurry up and say it. But now I'm glad you took your time. Because it's perfect. It felt like the world itself grinned then, but probably it was only the two of them. A year and a half later, arranging for the wedding ring to be placed on the wheel of their airport rental car had taken all of Harry's ingenuity. As Artesia smiled at the small velvet box in her hand, too full of the moment to open it, Harry got down on one knee. Sex and sugar, Harry said, summarising what he would give Artesia for the rest of her life. Artesia looked at him, his knee in the ice. She said, You know, I don't clean, cook or shut up. Harry thought about that, grinned. He said, you always did know how to sell something. The next minute, Harry would raise his hand in a signal and Artesia would learn that he had rented not only this car, but the entire parking lot. Hunkered down in its parked vehicles were Artesia's family, Harry's aunt and uncle, Ion, and four or five other black wax musicians ready to bust out and celebrate their engagement. Is there a plan for no bro? Ion had gently asked. Harry was forced to admit there was no plan for no. Never had been, in fact, in most everything he'd done since Artesia came along. She made no feel like a distant problem, nothing to do with him. A street lamp flickering out on the other side of the city. The yes plan was Fleetwood Mac covers that Day Day had reworked as gospel songs. A child of theirs in the future might ask how exactly they'd known they'd be good together. Harry already knew the answer. If she's got you in a garden chair in your own office, leaves you with an infinitely tellable tax joke, and puts despair far out of sight, that's probably your wife. Secretary? Well, he still wasn't sure. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Australian Book Review Podcast. This is one of three special episodes we'll be releasing this week, featuring the Jolly Prize shortlisted stories, read by the authors and presented in alphabetical order. You can find all three stories in our August issue. And join us on August 17 from 6pm for the Jolly Prize ceremony. Please visit our website for more information about this free online event and to register your interest in attending. We would like to thank the judges and all those who entered the Jolly Prize. 
and we congratulate all the long-listed and short-listed authors. We also warmly acknowledge the generous support of ABR patron Ian Dixon, AM, who makes the Jolly Prize possible in this form. The Jolly Prize will return next year. In the meantime, please visit our website for the details of the other long-listed stories and to read the three short-listed stories. Entries are also currently open for the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for digital access. Visit our website for more information or to purchase your copy of the August issue containing the three Jolly Prize shortlisted stories. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.